Well, on November 22nd, 1963, President John F. Kennedy was assassinated in Dallas. Shortly after that, they apprehended the man who assassinated him, Lee Harvey Oswald, who was then himself killed before he managed to even get to trial. Um, the assassination happened with three shots fired by one shooter, or so they claimed. It was hard to close that case because there were so many reports saying that they heard gunshots come from two different places, you know, the book depository and the grassy knoll. They also showed that that particular rifle, shooting three shots in that space of time, would have made Lee Harvey Oswald probably the most expert marksman ever with that rifle, uh, which was unlikely. And so there was a lot of questions about how much the government was revealing about what actually happened there. And they formed the Warren Commission. The Warren Commission was there to do an investigation to find out exactly what happened. And the Warren Con Commission's conclusion was that exactly as the government said it happened is what happened. One shooter, three shots from one location, case closed. But the rumors were still there, the conspiracies were still there. So the Warren Commission made the statement that if everybody in the public had all the information that we have, that's all classified, you would definitely agree with us. And so the public basically responded by saying, that's an easy problem to fix. Just reveal what you know that would convince us. And the Warren Commission committed to do that. We will reveal all of the documents, we'll disclose all of the information, declassify everything so that you can read it for yourself and determine that we were telling the truth all along and we commit to do that, just not yet. And so they sealed it, they sealed the, the case and all of the documents, and they were stored in a, a secret vault in the National Archives for 75 years, with the, the belief that after 75 years, we'll release all of this and the people involved um, won't get into too much trouble, I guess. So this would be 2039 is the year that everything will be released. This period was, quote, intended to serve as protection for innocent persons who could otherwise be damaged because of their relationship with participants in the case. And so since this sealing of the documents in 1964, these conspiracy theories, of course, have been going on and on and on. And then Oliver Stone made a movie about it, which really riled everybody up. And uh, eventually there was so much pressure for them to release these documents that they decided to scrap the 75-year wait. And they released five million documents in 1992. This is 29 years after the incident. Well, they said this was 98% of the information. There was still 2% that was very sensitive and was classified, and that would have to wait the whole 75 years. And so everybody looked at what had already been revealed and said, well, we already knew that. <laughs> we want to know the 2% that we don't know. And they said, well, sorry, you can't do that until on October 21st, 2017, President Trump announced to the world on his Twitter account that he would release the rest of the documents, and so he did. The National Archives released another 2,891 records. A week later, they released another 676 documents. A week later, another 13,213 records. The next week, 10,744, and this goes on and on and on. Every week there's these thousands of documents being trickled out. Obviously, it's taking people a week to determine exactly if this is okay. And eventually, all of the documents have been released except for the last 86. So there's 86 pieces of paper out there, and this includes, uh, the documents include things like, the records include, uh, cassette tapes of interviews and those types of things. And there's 86 items that are still classified. And so now you can go and look at millions and millions of documents and still there's a little piece of the puzzle missing, which we're going to have to wait for until 2039. As long as there is any undisclosed information, people are going to be looking curiously into what that could possibly be. And they're going to come up with theories and they're going to investigate and they're eagerly anticipating the day that all of that knowledge is made known. And that analogy reminds me so much of the story of our salvation. If you think about it, our salvation was not revealed in one shot, but it was revealed over thousands of years through dozens of authors writing in all the books of the Bible being revealed millennia after millennia. 
and yet there's still a little bit that we aren't quite sure of and that we are eagerly waiting for full disclosure of and longing to see. And we're not the only ones, by the way. So are the angels. So with that in mind, turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, where we will see Peter reminding us of another unseen reality. Last week we looked at the unseen reality of the Savior. You know, you haven't seen Jesus with your own eyes, but that doesn't mean that your, your love for him is any less. And so that's what we looked at last week. And now he's going to talk about another unseen reality, this future salvation that's going to be revealed in the last time. We know lots about it. We know more than anyone else in history so far, but we don't know everything quite yet. And so we're going to look at the three stages of redemptive revelation. Three stages of redemptive revelation. The past, present, and future. That's going to be our little outline today. The past anticipation. That's the old, going to talk about the Old Testament. Then the present explanation, which Peter's writing in the New Testament. And then there's a future examination by the angels themselves, believe it or not. And we will see that. So, let me read for you First Peter chapter 1, and we'll pick it up in verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That's what we looked at last week. Now, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Just until there this morning. Past anticipation, that's the first stage of redemptive revelation. Now, if you could get into a time machine and go to any time in history and live out your life in that period, what would it be? I mean, when I was younger, I thought maybe the Wild West would be cool. I was watching a lot of Clint Eastwood movies, and I thought that would be the coolest time because if someone bugs you, you just shoot them. Um, you know, I was young, and then I got older, and you know, you watch some of the Back to the Future movies, and you're like, ooh, ooh uh, no, it would have been cool to go back to the time where my parents were first getting together and see that. You know, if I could go back to the 80s and 90s even right now, I would just load up on Apple and Amazon and Google stock, you know, and just ride it out and live the life of luxury that comes from that. Or uh, maybe you would go back to the days of Abraham and see what that was like when things were simple, the days before smartphones and email and, and pollution and distractions and just live a simpler time. I always wonder, like, Abraham's one of the most important people in the Bible. Like, what did he do all day? Just have faith? I mean, okay, well, um, you certainly would know enough not to go before the ark and the flood, because you know what's coming. But when would you pick? I think for most Christians, we would say, if we had to pick one of those ancient times, we would want to go to the time that Jesus was alive, because then you get to see Jesus. What's better than that, right? The problem is that if you're alive the time Jesus is alive, and he dies on the cross, and you are a believer and believing in him, now you have a target on your back. And these Christians who lived in Peter's time, they're in that group. They're the people that are walking around with a target on their back. Maybe if you've seen Gary Larson, you know, Gary Larson does those little one-frame comics. One of my favorite ones is a bunch of deer, and they're all looking at this one deer who has a, has a red, has a circle target on his back. And they just say, ooh, bummer of a birthmark, man. <laughs> you, know? you don't want a target on your back if you're a deer. Well, you don't want one on your back if you're a person either, but you do have one if you're a Christian. And so these people, thank you, kid in the, in the back thought that was funny. Um, <laughs> these people need a reminder from Peter that they are living in the most privileged time in history. Despite the fact that they've lost their homes, they've lost their homelands, they've been scattered abroad, this letter is being passed around to these churches in this persecuted area, reminding them to keep calm and carry on. 
Just do the next right thing. You live your Christian life. Yes, it's difficult. Lots of people have lived in difficult times. Yours is probably the most difficult for Christians so far, but it's a very privileged time to be alive. And so if somebody told you, being hunted by Emperor Nero, that you were living in the most privileged time to be alive, you might need some convincing. And so this is what Peter's doing here. He's, he's showing us that living after the cross is a great privilege. Verse 10, concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. So the prophets wrote about something that they wouldn't see, but you get to see. They, they wrote about this coming Messiah and the work that he was going to do that was going to save you from your sins. And that's happened, and they didn't see that, but you did. And so this is a great privilege that I want you to remember in the difficulty that you're going through, that in all of human history, the 6,000 years of human history, wherever you live after the cross is more privileged than before the cross. And that's not something to take for granted, the fact that you have um, on your laps a Bible that goes all the way through to the end of the New Testament, to the book of Revelation. You know, when, when we were kids, my um, parents, every once in a while, like maybe once every year or two years sometimes, would load the three of us into a car and take us to an orphanage. Not to leave us there. <laughs> um, not to scare us, but just so we could play with the orphans, so that we could be a blessing to them, and we would go with some toys, you know, and um, we would give gifts, and we would play with the orphans, and their thinking was they wanted us to grow up realizing how privileged we were compared to some people. And that we, there were people out there that needed help and needed care. And also that we would stop complaining about them. <laughs> and stop complaining about the things that we had as if we didn't have enough. When we saw these are people that they don't even, they don't even have parents. Um, and it really worked. I mean, I was five years older than my brother and sister, so it worked on me. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> they, were, they were younger. But I was just very, very stricken every time we would go by the great privilege of what we have that we just take for granted. And the fact that we have a New Testament canon and an Old Testament canon and see how they fit together it gives us so much more understanding that people that have greater faith than we had had so little to go on, and yet they believed. Abraham knew almost nothing that you know. And yet he believed and it was accounted to him as righteousness. In verse 10, concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. These Old Testament prophets made predictions about the salvation that was coming, the Messiah and his coming, but even they didn't understand their own prophecies as well as we do. I want you to think about that for a moment. That's what that's saying. That concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, they searched and inquired carefully. You know what that means? They studied the Bible that they wrote to figure it out. They didn't see how all this plays out. They were the vessels of God's revelation for us, not even for themselves. I want you to turn just one book over to 2 Peter. There's, there's an, it's interesting to me that this gives us a, a glimpse of how the Bible was written. And Peter does this in 2 Peter, in chapter 1. So I recently read my, my, the first book I've ever read by Stephen King. And Stephen King is famous for writing horror stories and, I don't know, like ghost stories and about pet cemeteries and dolls that wake up at night and kill you and all the type of stuff that I have no idea why anyone would buy that book. But millions and millions of people do. He's one of the most successful writers in modern time. And I just don't get it. Um, I would never subject myself to something like that on purpose. Uh, but I read one of his books. Not one about animals killing you or whatever. I read a book on how he writes books. It's just Stephen King on writing. And even that's kind of scary. He's a creepy dude. But um, he, uh, 
It's a book on how he goes through the process because he's churning out these dozens of novels and they all sell millions of copies and they're all these gripping stories apparently and how does a person come up with that? And so he actually walks you through the process of how he writes a novel from start to finish and then he gives you writing tips and I'm, I'm doing this just in time before I write my dissertation so that I'm, I'm reading lots of books on how to write better. Um, so I hope my dissertation's not too scary <laughs> to my... To my supervisor, but it's a, it was a fascinating book, this book by Stephen King on writing. And this is kind of what Peter's doing here in Second Peter. He's giving us a little glimpse that's not prophecy, but it's unprophecy. It's, it's not new information about God, but it's more like information about how he got the information about God. It's really cool. Um, so in verse 18, he says this. This is Second Peter chapter 1, verse 18. Uh, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. So he's talking about the time he heard God's voice saying, this is my son, the beloved, in whom I'm well pleased. It says that in verse 17. So we heard this voice born from heaven, for we were with him, with Jesus, on the holy mountain, Matthew 17. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. I prefer the way the Nazbi says that. We have the more sure word to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place till the day dawns and the morning hearts arise. So he says something that's more important, that's better to have than the audible voice of God is the, the more sure word, the prophetic word that we have, the Bible. Then he says this, how it came about. Verse 20. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along or borne along by the Holy Spirit. So he says that no prophecy of Scripture... You know, people always say, oh, well, I don't believe the Bible because the Bible was written by men and men make mistakes. And he's saying, no, there is no prophecy of Spirit that came from someone, someone's own thinking. That everything that's in the Bible originated with the Holy Spirit. And the way these people get from the Holy Spirit's mind to the paper is that the Spirit bore them along, carries them along. And I'm sure you've heard that that phrase is referring to the same thing of a wind in the sails. So it's like the wind in the sails that bears the sailboat along is like the Spirit in the rider that bears him along so that the Scriptures come out to be what the Holy Spirit wants them to be. That's really fascinating. The Holy Spirit produced the Bible by employing men who wrote down what he wanted them to. So Peter says in Acts chapter 1 verse 16, for example, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas. So in Acts chapter 1, Peter's saying this is why you know, Judas died. We have to replace him with another apostle. And this was actually predicted by David. Now, do you think David knew that that's what he was talking about? No, I don't think he did. But that information is already there in the Psalms. Knowing that thousands of years later, Peter is going to make that connection. The Holy Spirit is going to help Peter make that connection. And Peter describes it as the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand about Judas. How did he do it? By the mouth of David. David himself describes something this way in 2 Samuel 23, verse 2. So that was Acts 1.16. This is 2 Samuel 23.2. The Spirit of Yahweh speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. So he did understand that at times when he was writing Psalms, when he was making prophecies even, David was a prophet, that he was speaking the word of God that was on his tongue. I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians 7. This is a little rabbit trail that's worth going on. You know, so sometimes, so you might be saying, well, how, 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 does, this, how does this work? Sometimes it's the voice of God. He, some of the stuff in Scripture came from an audible revelation of God, not much of it. Sometimes it's an angel. Angels were involved in the revelation. Um, sometimes it's visions that they have, like John in the book of Revelation is a vision that he has. Habakkuk is a vision, an oracle. Um, 
but most often it appears to be the overseeing of a person, like a providential overseeing of a person who's writing down their understanding, their thoughts, their composition. But when it's done, it, it's realized, or maybe even while it's happening, it's realized that this composition is something that the Holy Spirit wanted exactly the way it is, included and preserved for posterity. So, for example, Paul writes to the Corinthian church. Most of the epistles in the New Testament are about problems in churches that the apostles write to fix and to teach doctrine. And so what's amazing is if you look at all of the problems that show up in our church, in any church, in all the churches today, in the 21st century, every single one of them, you can go find a verse in the New Testament that addresses what's dealing with it. So those problems were providentially put there by the Lord, allowed there in those churches so that the apostles could write on what to do and how to think about them so that those would be preserved, so that we would get them. And none of that has any mistake in it because it was God that was producing this. The Spirit was. And so, you, yes, each writer has their own experience and their own style and their own vocabulary. One of the great joys of learning Greek is that you can start to see as you read the different Greek authors that Peter's writing is different from Paul's. You can recognize that in John. Everybody likes writing John because John's super simple. Like, love John. The writer of Hebrews is just showing off most of the time, you know. Him and Luke, it's like you don't want to be translating Acts. But even Peter, you see his, his style in Greek changed between 1 Peter and 2 Peter. There's a development. So God uses the, the people and their understanding and their knowledge and their experience and their style and their personality and their vocabulary to produce these things, but the final product is what God wanted there. And then I just wanted to give you this interesting little glimpse in 1 Corinthians 7. It's a chapter that's dealing with divorce, because there's what happens if somebody gets divorced, and now they want to get remarried. And so 1 Corinthians 7, Paul talks to the Corinthians about that. And he says this interesting thing in uh, verse 10. You know, so he's, he's going on about who should get married and who shouldn't get married, etc. And then in, in verse... 10, he says, to the married, I give this charge. And then in brackets in my Bible, it's in brackets, not I, but the Lord. And here's the charge. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother or believer has a wife who's an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her, and vice versa, etc. But so, I mean, the principles just there, he's just saying, you know, you should not get divorced, but if you do get divorced, um, then you have to remain single, right? And if you're married to an unbeliever, like if you get saved and now your husband's an unbeliever or your wife's an unbeliever and they want to stay married, then you should stay married. Don't say, well, now I'm married to an unbeliever, I'm unequally yoked, I'm going I'm to divorce them. Like, no, no, no. If they leave you, they leave you. Then you can get married to another believer, it says. But if they want to stay, then you, you stay married to them. So this is information that isn't found anywhere else in the Bible. Now, Jesus spoke about divorce, and, and Moses wrote about divorce, but yet he's giving new information to a more specific scenario that had never happened and never been mentioned before. But the part I want to focus on is in verse 10 where he says, To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord... And then in verse 12, he gives one, he says, the rest I say, I, not the Lord. So you're saying, what is going on there? Is, is Paul saying, well, Jesus said to do this, and, um, and he, he doesn't say this, but I say this, and you're going to follow me. No, no, that's not what's happening. What's happening is he says, the first thing I'm telling you about in verse 10, um, that a wife should not separate from her husband this is not I, this is from the Lord. This is something that Jesus taught when he was alive, and you already know this. This is something that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, 19, and Matthew chapter 19, and other places. In his ministry, people asked him about divorce. He spoke about it. So in this chapter on divorce, I'm telling you stuff that Jesus said out loud that people already know. Now, there's a more specific situation that Jesus didn't talk about. What about if there's a believer married to an unbeliever because one gets saved while the other one's already there? You, you can't get that situation because you can't have a believer being unequally yoked to a non-believer, Paul says. 
can't marry an unbeliever, but what if there's a scenario that now you're in that situation because one of you got saved? That had never happened before. In, in, well, it was never brought up in Jesus' ministry, so he never spoke about it. So that's why Paul says, I'm giving you this instruction. This is not from Jesus' teaching, his public ministry. This is from me. And so what we learn from that is Paul understood that when he was writing something to solve a problem in a church, it had the weight and the authority of the apostleship, which meant it had the weight and the authority of God himself. And so he's putting his commands on divorce right next to Jesus' commands on divorce. Interesting. I also want you to go to 2 Timothy chapter 3. You might say, oh, this is the... All scriptures breathed out by God verse. I've got it memorized. No, no, no. I want you to go there because I want to see what verse, I want you to see what word your Bible uses because we all have different Bible translations, which is great. That's fine. I'm reading from the English Standard Version, the 2016 update. Sometimes I read from the English Standard Version, the original one, the, the 2003, and it sounds like I'm just misreading stuff compared to the one in your lap, but that's because it's my personal Bible and it's cool, and I like to preach from it sometimes, but it's a little bit older than the one that we, most of us have, right? So what I'm saying here is that um, translations are people reading the Greek and then coming up with an English translation that gets printed. There's the English Standard Bible. There's, who's, who's, got the, um, who's got the ESV this morning, English, English Standard Version? Okay. Who's got the New American Standard Bible, the NASB? Okay. Um, who's got the NIV? the New International Version, okay? Um, and the other one we, we might look at here is the New King James Version, or even an Old King James Version. Okay, bless your hearts. Um, okay, so, <laughs> did I use that right? Um, 2 Timothy 3.16, in my, in my Bible, in the ESV, it says this, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable, etc." right? All scripture is breathed out by God. Now, if you have a NASB, a New American Standard, um, it says all scripture is inspired by God. That was the verses I memorized it as a new believer and going through seminary. All, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, and training in righteousness so the man of God will be perfect and complete. Okay, so that, that was just how I memorized it, inspired by God. But the ESV says breathed out by God. The NIV says God breathed, which is very good. And then the New King James Version says, given by inspiration by God, which is just bumpy, but sure. Is that right? Okay. Given by inspiration by God. Okay, so what, what, what do I mean here? What I want to clarify for you is if you, like me, grew up with the New American, I mean, I got saved in college, so gr grew up as a Christian. The first time I actually started reading and memorizing scripture, I was reading college. It was all New American Standard, all the way through seminary, New American Standard. So I learned this verse, one of the first verses I learned. All scriptures inspired by God and profitable. Okay, so, but the word inspired was being used differently in my English classes than it was in the sermons I was hearing. And it got a little bit confusing. So I, want to, I just want to clarify what it means. So uh, if, if you're taking English and you're, you're, you know, one of my favorite romantic poets is John Keats. And he wrote um, a very uh, interesting poem called An Ode to a Grecian Urn about the fragility of civilization and mankind and that, but it's kind of a story about, a poem about an urn, like a, a vase, you know? Um, but it represents stuff. It's very deep. Now, he was inspired by the beauty of the urn to write a poem about it. He was inspired. So what does that mean? It means inspiration hit him. He suddenly had, he... It's like Stephen King gets inspired to write about killing animals or whatever. I don't know, dolls that slice your throat. Um, like, what, diff different people have different inspiration, I guess. But inspiration is like, oh, I feel moved. I feel like I desire to, to do this thing. Um, that's not what this word means. And so when you say the Bible is inspired by God, it's not like God's like, oh, this is great. Or the, or the apostle is like, oh, I just feel moved to write about divorce. Um, that's not what's happening. So a better word is... The ESV says, breathed out by God. And the, the NIV is very good. God breathed, given by inspiration by God, is a little bit better than the NASV, but it's still not hitting it. It's trying to translate a word that we don't have in English. It's the Greek word, theopneustos. Now, why the Greek lesson? The word pneumonia. Have you ever wondered why the word pneumonia has a P in it? 
starts with a P. It's just a mess with kids doing spelling bee, right? Pneumonia, pneumatic drill. It comes from the Greek word pneuma. That's why. That P kind of drops off because it's a weird way of pneuma. And it means breath. So you get pneumonia because you've got lung infection. Pneumatic drill, is, it's an air drill. So pneuma means air or wind or breath or spirit. can mean all of those things. And so theo, meaning God, theo, pneustos, means God breathed, literally. God breathed. So the, the scriptures are God breathed. Not that the apostles were inspired to write them. You see the difference? The verse doesn't say that all the writers were inspired by God. It says all scriptures inspired by God. So it's not actually, to, we say to inspire means to breathe in. Like if you get one of those mouth-to-mouth uh, -mouth dummies, you inspire and then they expire, <laughs> if you do it wrong. Um, anyway, so inspire means to breathe in. That's not what's happening. It's being breathed out. It's being produced by God. So, so all that to say, you, you understand it any way your Bible says, I write things and I cross things out and change it to make it that I understand when I'm reading it. I would say God breathed or breathed out by God. And it's not the people, it's the, the scriptures. So it's not right to say the apostle Peter was inspired to write 1 Peter. 1 Peter was inspired by God. 1 Peter was breathed out by God. How did he do it? He bore Peter along in the Holy Spirit. Okay, so I hope that's not more confusing to you. I hope it's a little more clarifying. But you can go back to 1 Peter 1. You're saying, what does all of this have to do with what Peter's telling us? Well, he says, concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. And what were they doing? Inquiring what personal time the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. You see it? So Peter's saying, inquiring what personal time the Spirit of Christ in them, in these old prophets like Isaiah and Ezekiel and them, was indicating that he predicted, that he, the Holy Spirit, predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. So the prophets were godly men. They're getting direct information from the Holy Spirit, and yet they still don't know what it means perfectly. But do you know who does? You do. This brings us to our second point, the present explanation. That was the past anticipation. Here, Peter writes in verse 12, It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Stop there. So these prophets understood. It was revealed. Part of the revelation they were getting when they were writing their prophecies, it was revealed to them, you're not going to see this play out. This is for a future generation. Guess who that generation is? You who have received it. You who, through those who preached the good news to you, who preached the good news to you? Maybe it was me. Maybe it was somebody who led you to the Lord when you were a kid. Maybe it was your Sunday school teacher. Maybe it was a John Piper book. Maybe it was scriptures you were reading. But all of that boils down to the gospel that came from the apostles. So those are the ones who preached the good news to us, the writers of scripture, through all the people that got the good news to you and I individually. And so he says, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you, through those who preached the good news to you, the gospel to you, by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. So we church-age saints, and all, all Christians from now on, have a closed canon. Mean, meaning that the Bible is not still being written. It's not like Revelation, the sequel. Um, there's no sequel. Revelation's it. The last verse of Revelation says you're done. No, no more Revelation. And, and the church has always understood it that way. So that's why when people come with like, Ooh, I go God told me this and this. God told me to tell you this and this. God told me. It's like, no, 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 no. God told us everything we need in the Bible. He's not still giving information. He doesn't need to. It's all in here. And so this is a great privilege that we have. It's better than receiving direct revelation from God because the people who get direct revelation from God don't even understand it all, but we do. We've got the explanation in the New Testament. I mean, can you imagine being Isaiah and writing these two prophecies? Isaiah 42.1 Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not grow faint or be discouraged. 
till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. And you're like, wow, the Messiah, he's going to bring justice. He's going to be powerful. He's not going to get discouraged. The spirit of the Lord is on him and the spirit of favor. This amazing man's coming. And then later you're writing a prophecy and the spirit leads you to write this. He was despised and rejected by man. A man of sorrows acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. We esteemed him not. He's borne our griefs. He was stricken. He was, you know, it goes on and on. You're like, well, how can he be not, not grow faint and weary, never be discouraged, bring justice, rule the nations, and also be somebody who's stricken and smitten and rejected and not esteemed? And we're like, that's easy. He, he came twice. <laughs> he came once lowly and humbled and stricken, and, and he's going to come again in glory. But Isaiah didn't know that. Nobody knew that. Paul calls that a mystery that's revealed in the New Testament. They didn't see it was happening twice. So they're just writing, so the Messiah is this and the Messiah is that, and I don't know how to reconcile that. I'm just doing my job. I just work here. I'm just writing this stuff down. And so that's what Peter means when he says, it was revealed to them that they weren't serving themselves, but you in the things that you've now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Isaiah's scroll didn't come with footnotes and study notes in the Bible. Neither did David's psalms. David wrote Psalm 16.10, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. Who's he talking about? Everyone thought he was talking about himself, that he was talking about David, but then he died. And only in Acts... Does Peter say, obviously it wasn't David, he's dead. There's his tomb over there. He was talking about the resurrection of Jesus. David didn't know he was talking about the resurrection of Jesus. This blows my mind that we know more about the Bible than David. Galileo Galilei, Nicholas Copernicus, Johannes Kepler, Robert Boyle, Sir Isaac Newton. I mean, these are some of the greatest minds the world has produced and physicists that have explained the inner workings of the world. But get this, any high school student who took physics knows more than all of them combined, in theory. <laughs> Some of it's kind of tricky, but there's been, so, we know about quantum physics that these guys didn't know about. In the same way, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and Samuel and David these were the godliest, most theologically informed people in history, and yet any Christian who attends Christ Fellowship regularly, any Christian who hears sermons, reads commentaries, and reads their New Testament regularly, knows more than Ezekiel, and Samuel, and David, and Isaiah. That makes you want to read your Bible. If you just read your Bible starting January 1st, four chapters a day, you'll read through the whole Bible. I suggest you put a marker at Genesis, at Psalms, and at Matthew. Beginning, middle, New Testament, and then just read two chapters of Genesis, one of Psalms, one of Matthew, and just let those ribbons move, and you'll figure it out when you're going. And you'll finish the whole Bible. So let's not wait. Let's... Let's enjoy what we've been given. But just like the JFK Act of 1992, only 98% of redemptive history has been revealed. Um, so we are still curious to know how it's all going to pan out exactly. That's why there's debates about amillennialism, postmillennialism, premillennialism. We're going to have a whole evening service on that in a few weeks' time, by the way, where I'll explain those views. And it's, it's fascinating to us, and it's not crystal clear to us, but we're not the only ones. This brings us to our third and final point. We'll, we'll wrap it up quick. It's pretty simple. The future of angelic examination. Verse 12 says um, that, you know, have been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, and then this line, things into which angels long to look. Angels have no more revelation about the consummation of your salvation than you do. They've got the same Bible you do. I think they probably understand it better than we do and know it better than we do, but they don't have more information. They're intrigued by the concept of salvation. They're, they're, they study it. I bet they have coffee shops in heaven where the angels are sitting around like reading group. And they're like, man, what, what is going on here? What did David mean? And then David walks in. Hey, David, come here. 
come help us. And he's like, I don't know, we need to get one of the New Testament guys, you know. <laughs> Let's get one of them to help us. I mean, obviously I'm being facetious. Everyone... But the point is that the, the final consummation of salvation has not yet been revealed that not even the angels know. In Mark 13, 32, Jesus says this, concerning the day or that hour, meaning the day and the hour that he returns, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven. Now, don't get me wrong, angels aren't theologically illiterate. They know history perfectly. They know humanity perfectly. They have a perfect understanding. There's no armal, postmal, primal debate in the coffee shop in heaven among the angels. They, they've got it all figured out, but they don't know more. They don't know it all, let's put it that way. There's still a little bit that needs to be investigated. Things into which angels long to look. They're eagerly awaiting the full disclosure. And it's going to be fascinating. Angels are perplexed. Um, in 1 Corinthians 6, where Paul says, don't sue each other. Christians shouldn't sue each other. You should be able to take your case to spiritually-minded people that can help you figure out what to do. He says this, um, does one dare to go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world's to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we're to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? And you're like, wait, what? In his arguments, he's saying, oh, come on. You guys should be able to figure out the little squabbles among you, not have to take it to a secular court. Don't you know that you're going to be ruling the world someday? Get some practice. Don't you know that you're going to be ruling angels? Nope, didn't know that. <laughs> Apparently, they knew that. I mean, he draws on that like we should know it. But that's amazing that when we get to heaven, at the moment we're a little lower than the angels. We read that earlier. A little lower than the angels, Hebrews chapter 1 and 2. But when we get to heaven, we're in charge of them. Hebrews 1.14, are they not all ministering spirits, serving spirits, sent out to serve for the sake of those who inherit salvation? They aren't sent out to serve all humans. They're sent out to serve Christians. They're the ones who inherit salvation. They are servants. We're going to be in charge of them. And that must be very confusing to them right now when they look at how bad we are at stuff. We're going to put those guys in charge of us? I hope they have a class or something when they get here. But the thing is, Jesus treats us differently. We're not just treated as servants. We're treated as servants and friends. John 15, 15. No longer do I call you servants. For the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. We are co-heirs with Christ. It's a mystery to me. And it's a mystery to them, the angels. And yet without sin and envy and jealousy, they are curious to see how it plays out. That we will one day be made so glorious and so perfectly wise and sinless in the, the likeness of our Savior, that we will be able to competently rule the world, even the angels. That's a story. You read a story of a millionaire who dies and leaves all of his fortune, not to his friends and family, but to his butler, and you'll be like, I bet there's a story there. <laughs> That's what the angels are thinking. The co-heirs of these guys? The servants? We're not just servants. We're the heirs. So, go home and read your Bible. That's the application point. And enjoy it and study it and read the footnotes and get commentaries and listen to sermons. And this is the joy of life that we get to unpack the glories of our salvation and of our Savior. Read it. Memorize it. Learn about your Savior and salvation and the cross, the indwelling Holy Spirit in you, the miracle of new, the new birth, and all the things that the prophets long to see, which we have in our laps, that even the angels are curious to look into. Let's pray. Father, it is a humbling and exciting reminder that we have so much revelation at our disposal. I pray that you would help us to know your word and to apply it to our lives and to our church, that we would live lives that are overcoming and free from the tyranny of sin and temptation. And that you will help us be the people you want us to be. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.